This is KCBX, Central Coast Public Radio. It's time for Issues and Ideas, a show that features a wide variety of local voices sharing their thoughts and perspectives. Today, we'll visit with legendary tile artisan Richard Keat at his RTK Studios in Ojai. I was still at the stage of working in my laundry porch, six feet by 20 feet with a washer and dryer and making tiles. Also, local author Catherine Finstuen talks about her new collection of essays titled Dearly Befuddled. It can be making people laugh, which I know that I do, and in, in the books it can be making people feel noticed, cared about. I think more people need to feel noticed and cared about. These stories and more coming up on Issues and Ideas. Good afternoon. It's Monday, December 12, 2022. I'm Carol Tangeman. A tiny species of clam, never before seen alive, has now been discovered on a central coast beach. Using fossil records, local researchers identified the species and published a paper on their discovery. But questions remain about where it's been hiding all these years. Beth Thornton reports. There, look, like, look at the spikes, getting are close. You not That's Jeff Goddard with students marveling at the abundant sea life in tide pools near UC Santa Barbara. Goddard is a research associate with UCSB's Marine Science Institute. He's spent years in Santa Barbara's rocky intertidal zones studying nudibranch sea slugs. He says he's quite familiar with the wide variety of sea life in the tide pools. But in 2018, he got a major surprise. I turned this rock. And these two translucent white clams caught my eye. I had never seen them before. Goddard was at Naples Point, a few miles from UCSB, when he saw the pair of clams not more than a half an inch in size. So I just I dropped what I was doing and uh, started taking close-up pictures. Guessing this was a rare find, he didn't disturb the clams. Instead, he sent photos to renowned mollusk expert Paul Valinish Scott at the Santa Barbara Museum of Natural History. But without an actual specimen, it wasn't possible to identify the species. So for the next several months, Goddard returned to Naples Point at low tide in search of the tiny clams. It wasn't until um, about three months later on my ninth trip back there, and I turned a rock and... And I found another one and it was like, Eureka! <laughs> now the challenge became identifying the species. Valinesh Scott got to work. We just walked into the Collections and Research Center at the Santa Barbara Museum of Natural History. And this uh, particular section is uh, the Department of Invertebrate Zoology, so animals without backbones. He has studied clams since 1975. So yeah, I was intrigued right off, and so that started the hunt. He began by scouring fossil records from the last 200 plus years. And finally, a sketch of a fossil unearthed in 1937 near the La Brea Tar Pits in Southern California looked like a match. Valinish Scott requested the actual fossil from the Natural History Museum of Los Angeles County. The pandemic slowed the whole process down, but when he got the fossil and compared it to the new specimen, he knew right away. I don't think I'm ever 100% confident on any identification, uh, but yes, I am very, very confident. Certainly 95% confident that uh, those are the same thing. The fossil is from the Baldwin Hills Pleistocene that dates back thousands of years. It's between 100 and 120,000 years ago at, at this particular deposit. And that actually jives very well with 
the La, La Brea tar pits, which are, you know, just a couple miles away. This tiny species of clam somehow survived undetected all this time. He says no records exist of sightings by anyone in Southern California or anywhere else until now. It's never been documented alive until this discovery, until Jeff found them in 2018. Valinish Scott says it's possible that the species is so rare and so small that it's simply been overlooked. And he credits Jeff Goddard's keen eye for finding it. Goddard from the Marine Science Institute thinks a warming ocean also played a role. He says there's a good chance that the clam rode the current northward during a recent marine heat wave. It may be one of these species that's reflecting what's going on with larger changes in ocean climate that relate directly to climate change. Goddard says the clam species may be new to the central coast, but it's been alive somewhere all these years, possibly Mexico. My hypothesis is, is that they are on a remote part of the coast to the south. And the first place I would look are these giant boulder fields on the west coast of Baja. He says finding and identifying this forgotten species has been a remarkable journey for him as a scientist. You don't often find living a species that has previously been known only from the fossil record. So it's a sort of a a living fossil. Goddard and Valinish Scott co-authored a paper on the discovery. It's a hopeful story, they say, of a species thought to be long lost, but found alive right here on a beach in Santa Barbara County. They encourage other scientists to continue the search up and down the coast. You can find their paper online at zookeys.net. For KCBX, I'm Beth Thornton. This is KCBX, Public Radio for the Central Coast. You're listening to Issues and Ideas. We'll visit with legendary tile artisan Richard Keat at his RTK Studios in Ojai. My name is Richard Thomas Keat. I'm married to Mary Kennedy, who works with me. We're partners in this business. We're both very interested in doing design work, you know, and making tiles and architectural ceramics and so forth. I've been doing it for about 45 years. So you're getting the hang of it. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) And she was a potter that did some of the most amazing sculptures that I ever saw in in clay. When the Northridge quake happened, her house was actually knocked off the foundation and everything she ever made in her life was completely destroyed. And uh, so at that point, we become really good friends and she decided she'd come work with me and then for me and then we got married. Were you in Ojai at that time? No, she was in Simi Valley and I was in Thousand Oak. And then we came out here just on a whim to see what Ojai was all about. And this was back in the early 80s? This would have been like in the late 80s. Yeah, we went to see an art show in the park. And when we got there, there was this guy named Billy Dorsey who I had bought several paintings that he had done. His style suggested that he would have been somebody that died back in the 1940s because his work was just like those very, very famous people. I said, are you the junior version of it? You know, and he said, no. Long story short, he said, well, we really love this place already. Is there any place around here near downtown for sale that you know of? Because we were having a nice chat. He said, yeah, come with me. So we go to his house, which is like literally almost in the park. We're talking for like about 10 minutes. You know, we're just looking for something cheap that we can fix up. Mm-hmm. And he says, okay, I'm going to stop you right there. And I said, okay. He said, turn around. There was a sign about five by five <laughs> in front of this place for sale for $1,400. What? Yeah. 
it was a teardown. It was wow. it was railroad worker housing, uh-huh. and it was the only one that hadn't been torn down when they forgot about it because it was on the other side of the road. So we bought it, we fixed it up, and turned it into a craftsman-style home. Is that where we are now? Yeah, that's where we are now. Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah. We've got a carpenter right now doing some more carpentry. <laughs> <laughs> so tell us about your art and craft, what you do, because it's extraordinary. Oh, and you've you. done work on... Catalina Island. Yeah, that was a great job because I got to meet a guy named John Gabriel Beckman at 27 years old. He was responsible for all the details of the Grumman's Chinese Theater wow. at 27 years old. He wow. was the guy that designed everything. You know, not the structural stuff, but everything else. You mm-hmm. know, Because of that project, the Wrigley's hired him to come and do the same for the casino in Avalon, which is now considered a world landmark. And you and did some tile work there. Yeah, he did nine beautiful undersea garden murals that were painted on the rough concrete were supposed to be done in tile and that Rigitz had a tile company there just around the corner from Avalon. So he was very upset with the way the murals looked when I met with him on the island and I don't even know how he found me because I was still at the stage of working in my laundry porch six feet by 20 feet with Mm -hmm. a washer and dryer and making tiles. I still don't know to this day how, you know, I forgot to ask him, how did you find me? You know, because, you know, I, I was just getting started. It was yeah. more of a hobby than anything. And so he said, well, I think you're the right person to do this. So he wanted me to start with the mermaid. See, and what had happened is over the years, like about every five years, the maintenance crew would repaint the murals because paint was peeling off and the sun was bleaching it out. Mm-hmm. And they just used whatever cans of color that happened to be in their storage unit and just go out there and repaint things. And so at the point that I, um, and I actually have it in my book, the mermaid herself had morphed into an underwater vampire with the way they painted her. <laughs> and the breasts that were just normal, like yeah. you'd expect on a mermaid, were like flotation device. You know? <laughs> it was atrocious, it really yeah. was. So he campaigned with the Wrigley's to at least start by getting the mermaid mural done the way it should have been done. In tile. Yeah, in tile. And you did that. Yeah. And And you can see your work today out there. Yeah, it's still out there, yeah. Yeah. What he had to give me, he gave me all these things that I, I really have to take him to a museum once I trust the museum to take good care of him. He gave me all of his sketches, but none of them were finished because when he was about... 70% 70% done with each of those sketches. William Wrigley Jr. was an impatient man, <laughs> said, okay, just stop that. Just start painting. Just start <laughs> putting them up there. No more, like, just whatever you want to do, just do it, but get it done. So he stopped and did it. And unfortunately, like I say, the paint didn't last because mm-hmm. it was just painted on. Oh, and that was, I forgot, Wrigley wanted to do it with his tile company. And John said, no, you only have eight colors to offer me. I need about 800 colors wow. to do this right, you know. So he found me, and mm-hmm. I started making color palettes for him to, to choose from. And, and so what forth. time was in history was this? That would have been like around 1975. Uh-huh. Yeah. I was just fresh out of high school and freshly married out of high school. Yeah, I was in the middle of college, actually, Uh, at that time. Did that establish your (laughs) reputation as an extraordinary artist in tile? Well, I don't know because I never thought of myself that way. You know, I just had a passion for it. But, you know, we get praise from time to time, which is always nice. But it's always, for me, it's always a little bit discomforting. Right. Because it's like... Well, we think we do a good job, but and, and we, we're happy that you think so too. But you have multi multi millionaire clients who 
yeah. have you do custom projects on mansions. Yeah, probably the most significant projects that we've done in that regard is King Hussein of Jordan. We did his new palace in the mountains looking down at Amman because he'd had so many assassination attempts that the original palace, the walls weren't high enough to clear the new skyscrapers had been <laughs> built so these sharpshooters could actually see into the home within the walls. Wow. Did you have to go to Jordan to do some work? We didn't have to. They wanted us right. to. But the only reason they wanted us to was to oversee the tile installation. Mm -hmm. And the architect that lives in and found us for him is right here in, just, just right here, not, not in Ojai, but just outside of Ojai. Mm -hmm. Anyway, so then we got some emails explaining all the protocols to go there. And, and it was like, don't talk to anybody. Don't speak any English. Don't have anything on you that has any English words in wow. it. You know? And there were three or four different sects of Islam, and they didn't get along. Uh -huh. And they were constantly sabotaging each other and stuff like that. So we thought, yeah, maybe we'll pass on that. <laughs> but it is interesting that when the tiles were all made and were going to be sent over there, they gave us an address to ship it to, and it was the White House. Yeah, for his... For the U.S. For White House? Yeah, his 747 was sent over just to pick up our tiles. Wow. Which is, which is crazy. It's like, yeah. you know, the tiles didn't cost anywhere near what it cost for him to send a 747 over to pick them up. That's hysterical. <laughs> yeah. So moving on, what sort of iterations happened to you after that? Well, we started getting other jobs in Catalina, you know, private homes there, some of the buildings that were in bad shape, you know, that sort of thing. I guess the, the first thing that I did that made it clear to me and to my now ex-wife, she was very nervous about it. She never could understand how you can just go and continue with your computer job. I, I was a <laughs> quality assurance manager for a computer company. It's like, how could you give up a good paying job to do that? Well, about a week later, this guy, oh God, I've got to remember his name. He was the first person to be banned from the card tables in Vegas. Mm -hmm. He's a super intelligent guy. He created his own foundation for like very, very high level mathematics and, and even theoretical mathematics and mm -hmm. that sort of a thing. Anyway, he came in with his wife. He just wanted some of our decorative tiles for this mansion that he was building in Spyglass Hill down south overlooking the ocean. And um, I had been there a week before. And I had a jacket that I had glued some pockets in that were just the right size for my tiles. I was wearing a coat that weighed about 40 pounds. Right. I was trying to get the attention of the contractor because I could see that they were getting pretty close to being done. Long story short, he said, well, okay, well, can I see your tiles? And I opened up my coat, you know, I was like, <laughs> you know, I'm not flashing you, buddy. I'm just showing you the tiles, you know. <laughs> so he said, well, if you want to pick any of them or all of them to show the client, you're welcome to. So he, I'm, I'm holding it like this and he's pulling tiles. Okay, I'll take this one, this one, this one, and this one. A week later, the owner shows up with his wife. Anyway, he showed up at my house, and I had to bring him around into the you know laundry porch. And I thought, oh, they're gonna they're not gonna want to order from me because I'm working in my laundry porch. Well, he did. He ordered a bunch of tile. I thought, okay, that's great. This is gonna be my first real job, you know, making for somebody. And then, as it turned out, I had done a bunch of different tessellating turtles over the years, you know, designed them and made them in tile. And I had a bunch of prototypes there. If you can imagine, these were big turtles, and they were about that thick. They were stacked up in a low place under a shelf. All you saw is a bunch of knuckles, one knuckle over the other. <laughs> and the wife says, are those turtles? And I'm like, 
You got that from just seeing the shadows of these knuckles coming out, mm-hmm. you know, because not all of the legs had knuckles because some of them were out, you know. Right. Anyway, so she said, oh, my God. It turns out that she collected turtles from all over the world. Not living turtles, but, you know, like $200,000 jade carved turtles and, wow. and turtle jewelry and lamps that were made out of beautiful turtle shells and so forth. So he said, you know, where do you want to use the, the turtles? And she said, how about in the entryway? And I said, well, yeah, that's fine. Cutting to, to the short of it, turns out that because he had a corner lot, he had to do the sidewalk all the way down one side, about half of a football field, and down the other side, half a football field. And he wanted to do all in turtles. Oh, my god! And then the walkway into the house and the front entryway in turtles. And you did that? Yeah. That and, kept you busy for a while. Yeah, it did. <laughs> And the crazy thing about it, and this is the part that like, I find to be so sweet about how what a sweet man he is and was. He's 98 right now, and he's sharp as a tap. Wow. So I'm not as sharp as him because I can't remember his name right now. <laughs> so he said, well, how much are they? And I said, I froze. I was like, I have no idea. I have no idea how much they cost me to make. I have no idea how much to charge you. I don't know. And he put his hand on my shoulder, and he said, how about $100 a piece? And at that time, I almost fainted. I was like, $100 a piece? This is crazy. So I was all flustered. And I said, I don't know. I, I, I've never sold one. I don't know what to do. I don't know how much to charge you. He said, how about $200 a piece? That fast. That, oh, that my fast. gosh. And I said, he well, thought you were holding out. Yeah, I know. So I said, I don't know. That's probably enough. And he said, okay, I'm going to make this easy on you. $300 a piece, and you just say yes right now. How funny. Yeah, and I said yes. And what he bought, I went from this 800-square-foot house, which my wife was getting tired of, you know, with three kids and a tiny mm-hmm. house like that. We bought a, a house a few blocks away that had a swimming pool, a basketball court, balconies, oh. five bedrooms, uh-huh. four bathrooms. And it was really close to the school that the kids were going to. So turtles paid for your house. Yeah, they did. <laughs> he just wrote a check right there and then. Wow. How many turtles did you make? You know, I don't remember the number, but... In dollars, it turned out to be like something around $400,000. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Wow. And then I was able to buy proper kilns. I had a three-car garage studio at that point, you know, with a lot of big, expensive kilns and so forth. Wow. So moving on to today, who are some of your clients and what are some of the coolest projects you're doing? You had mentioned Seattle. Yeah, that was, um, so Oracle, we actually we did a bunch of tiled pots for um, the guy that started Oracle, I forget his name off the top of my mm-hmm. head. So also then these other two guys, one was the, the CEO, he was the bookkeeper for the business, he was the money guy, right? Mm-hmm. The other one was the engineer, mm-hmm. top engineer. So they became co-top dogs mm-hmm. there. And what so did you do for so them? So it was the engineer bought an entire block of downtown Seattle. It was the very first municipal buildings that they did that housed all the government for the um, city of Seattle. He bought it because they were in bankruptcy, deep in bankruptcy. So he bought it from them for something like $40 million or I think it was probably like $400 million actually, <laughs> you know, something like that. Wow. Because one of the buildings that he had that he had us do tile for was the library. And everything was kind of like Greco-Roman architecture with big pillars and so forth. And so the library, he had all kinds of architects, you know, doing interior design and so forth. And he decided he wanted a place in the library that was called the Sunroom Reading Room, which was for kids and their books and so forth. Mm -hmm. He knew when I mentioned M.C. Escher and his tessellations. So he saw my repertoire of tessellations and he wanted the turtles. And he ended up with one, and I have an image of it in there, 
that's about 24 feet long and about 8 feet wide with a border around the perimeter. I made secondary patterns with all the turtles so that there was like moray patterns running through it. So it had a mathematical aspect to it, which he appreciated. And he thought that that was something that was educational in, in that sense also. Mm-hmm. And this is outside of my tile, but very quickly, there were 64 pillars. And he was an architectural, you know, he was somebody that was just completely immersed in architecture, even though that wasn't what he did for a living. And so he recognized that the proportions weren't right. So he had all 64 of those that were done in concrete and painted to look like marble. He had them all removed and replaced them and brought the building up another like six feet for those taller pillars. He had actual marble ones made for a million dollars a piece, $64 million. Wow. Yeah. (laughs) Years ago, I stopped in and visited you. Mm -hmm. And at that time, you were just finishing up your first iteration of something that I believe is a game changer in Mm -hmm. construction materials. You found a way to recycle unrecyclable glass and turn them into bulletproof tiles. You hit a hammer on one to show me and it wouldn't wouldn't crack. This is an example of one before it's been fired to 900 degrees. Mm -hmm. This comes out of a mold. There's no shrinkage in or out of the mold. And after it's fired, there's no shrinkage either, which is different, you know, with clay is different. So you can kind of get a sense like, so this one's not fired yet. It's, it's somewhat solid, but you know, it hasn't been fused. So you can hear that's, yeah. you know, that's got a certain ting to it, mm-hmm. right? But after 900 degrees, you've got this. Wow. And you're hitting that as hard yeah. as you can there. Yeah. And this is, you can see the detail is very detailed. Mm-hmm, fair. And they're just, they're just incredibly durable. Um, and this one is 90% recycled glass. And the glass that I get, it's not purified. As a matter of fact, I, at one point, it's going to sound crazy, I took a 50-pound bag and I spent a whole week with tweezers pulling everything out of it that was like a little chip of metal or something like for that. An, for an object. Yeah. yeah, for an object, yeah. And I thought, well, I wonder if those are really a problem. And I thought, because that's going to be siphoning all those out, it's going to mm-hmm. be a problem. And so what I was buying is a product called Vitrogrit. They were using the recycled glass as sandblasting material. It actually is, is a better sandblasting material because it doesn't damage whatever is that like you're trying to blast off of your right. you know, scum on your swimming pool or something like that. So then the rest of it basically is like a cement, a cementation material. I think that's probably the most secret, so to speak. You mm-hmm. know, it's just basically a, a ceramic mix that's in dry powder that helps to hold the whole thing apart while it's curing and before you fire it. But again, it's 90% glass. One of the huge issues in America's recycling efforts you go to any glass shop Mm -hmm. and they have their boneyard on the side with giant tempered glass panels and i go what do you do with those well we just go to the dumps we can't recycle it but you found a way one to recycle it two you found a way to create roofing tiles that would be bulletproof yeah yeah why has that not gone viral yet well, it was a design issue with, with the uh, roof tiles to be able to make ones that are extremely durable, mm-hmm. for one thing, and that are thin, very thin, and you can walk on them and so forth. Right, you know? right. And they all, they attach to each other, you know, so it's, it's, a, it's, it's a geometric system, you know, that works. So is that happening? Is that well, prototypical? It's one of those things where, like, it's so hard to do what we are doing 
with and, and we've done like I say we're still doing a lot of work with this and the and, turtles. and selling it well yeah. not just the turtles but we're making architectural pieces mm-hmm. out of the glass that we do I came up with a name for the glass but I, it's like I don't really think about it because it was sort of like a marketing name you right, know like right. I call it it's on some of the labels of some <laughs> of the jars back there but I can't think of what it is it's something that I keep finding time here and there to work on more and so most recently my wife and I have we've had to sort of like sever our differences in terms of like you know she's doing what she wants to do now and I want to do what I want to do and so we sort of have a you know a handshake agreement that I'm going to have the time now to start doing that more that's really cool okay if somebody wanted to learn more about your world of tile right where would they go they could get to us through our website just rtkstudios.com and they can email us at rtkstudios1979 at gmail.com. Uh, Richard Thomas Keat, and my wife is Mary Kennedy. <laughs> Richard, thank you so much. This has been fascinating. I'm your host, Tom Wilmer, reporting from Ojai, California. We'll see you here. This is KCBX. You're listening to Issues and Ideas. Local author Catherine Finstuen talks about her new collection of essays called Dearly Befuddled. Hello, I'm Brian Reynolds for Issues and Ideas on KCBX Public Radio for the Central Coast. Today, we are joined by local author Catherine Finstuen to talk about her new book, Dearly Befuddled. Welcome, Catherine. Thank you. Uh, Like your other book, which I've read recently and enjoyed a lot, uh, it's illustrated uh, by your sister-in-law, Jessica. Yes, Yes, it is. Uh, It's a beautiful book. And uh, I must say that uh, on the dedication page near that, uh, you have a quote which really moved me from Albert Einstein. The only thing you absolutely have to know is the location of the library. What inspired you to put that in there? To honor libraries? Well, they are a huge part of my life. My mother used to drag me to the one in Bothell, um, and I didn't love that so much, but it was a huge part of our routine to always go to the library. Our family was a big reading family. Um, About 15 years ago or so, I realized I was going to not have room for myself in my home anymore if I continued buying books. Um, I already went to the library. One of the first things I did when I moved to the area is get my library card. And um, so I frequented the library even more, and I found and I feel very lucky when I say this, but with the shutdown, even though I felt unlucky at the time, one of the biggest problems was the library closed. And I realized that that's small in the you know vast um, scheme of things, but it was a huge deal for me to not be able to visit. And every time they either had pickup or added to their hours or whatever, it was a big deal for me to be able to get back there. And it's just reading is a huge part of my life and the library affords me the opportunity to read so much. Let's talk about you a little bit, sort of who you are and how you got here and uh, to be writing this book. I am from Washington State, and after I graduated from college, I decided I wanted to try living in a beautiful place in California. My mother was not pleased. She was worried. I said, I'll come back if I don't find a place. I had three areas in mind, San Luis Obispo being one, and when I drove through it in my early 20s, I thought, this is divine. And I found um, a room to rent on a trailer in a ranch in Morro Bay. And I moved in. I started working ob jobs, including independent bookstore, um, Leon's, which is no longer. And then I ended up getting my master's in teaching credential at Cal Poly. 
got my teaching job. As we discussed last time, I've always been interested in writing. And a few years ago, I was able to set the modest goal of 15 minutes a day. And then that bloomed. And I came up with my first collection of essays, asked my sister-in-law if she'd be interested in illustrating. She was. We had such a wonderful time. We were already very close, but it was so great working together on that um, that I asked if she'd be willing to do another one. And it came together very quickly. I wrote pretty consistently for four weeks at the beginning of this last summer. I was astonished at the output, but I also had this idea, the drawing theme this time, instead of birds for the first one, was little free libraries. And I would tell her, I would like this object in it, and maybe this one will have a title. And so we again worked together and had a wonderful time. And I'm really proud of both collections. She described this one as a more mature tree than the first one. In terms of literary genres, essays are right up there uh, or right down there with poetry in terms of uh, popularity or getting prizes and so forth. What led you to consider uh, writing essays? I didn't really make the decision uh, until I started doing that practice of 15 minutes because I as I mentioned um, once before when we spoke, I thought novel short stories because that's what I read largely. And then what was working and what was coming out that was the most creative with the best phrasing with my most uh, distinct voice was this essay format. And so that's what um, I decided, well, this is working. I'm going to try this. However, just as you just said, I'm finding it really hard to find readers and for people to buy the books. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Now with the internet, uh, I mean, it's, I hate even to use the word, but you've got to have a brand. The brand has to engage people in an online environment where there's so many other uh, competing voices, not just all kinds of things, but treasure and trash all mixed in mm-hmm. willy-nilly. We're going to get into this a little bit more, but I would call your uh, your prose um, unusual, atypical, pretty exciting stuff. A laugh a minute for me. Let's do a reading if oh, you're sure. ready. I suppose it's natural, the making fun of one's parents. If I had children, I know they would have ample stock from which to choose, my tendency to converse with strangers chief among them. If I can forge a meaningful or silly, or if I'm lucky both at one blow, connection, the day's enrichment thermometer reaches lofty heights indeed. The danger exists in choosing wrongly, the wrong person, the wrong approach. Mostly the interactions prove fruitful, beneficial to both parties, but sometimes, sometimes that same thermometer's measure sinks to levels of abysmal humiliation. One such dip into cringedom is sponsored by one of my people. One of my former people, that is. I think we all have them, individuals we do not know who, due to some coincidence of habit or schedule, have woven themselves into the pattern of our life. Many representatives of this category can dapple or darken the day. One who dappled journeyed afoot to the local high school while I, unbeknownst to her, embarked on my commute in the other direction, sometimes practicing faulty French. I loved this girl. She exemplified good cheer when my own mood tended toward the opposite end of the spectrum. Quite simply a day brightener, a smile on the face of the morning. Our relationship lasted more than a year until my big fat mouth intruded. Yes, I saw her in the grocery store one day, 
Overly excited, I approached, confessing what a wonderful aspect of my daily round she'd proven herself to be, and for so long. Although response was negligible, I did not ascertain just how unwelcome my intentions must have been. No, that insight arose the next morning, the one after that, and the many trailing forever afterwards. No more sightings, that poor girl, forced to change her walking route in avoidance of the crazy lady accosting innocence in pursuit of after-school nourishment. Acute awareness of my obtuseness besieged my being. As a high school teacher... I assume you teach English? Yes, 10th and 11th. What comes out of the interaction with the students that you see that is noteworthy? I mean, good ideas, positive trends. What's what's going on with your kids, and how do they inspire you? Well, just the last couple of days we've been talking about my experiment with not giving cumulative tests, and I got a lot of feedback about their feelings about that. And I said, ultimately, what I want you to do is think. And you can be honest with me, how many of you have thought because of this class and what about and that opened us up and the other thing I told them just in these discussions of the last two days is I believe that literature is about what it is like to be a human being and I feel we do a disservice by limiting our definition uh, or narrowing what we think human beings are you told me I seem not just my work but atypical (laughs) and I've always felt that way but I just, I feel like humans are so complex and nuanced and we don't really allow for that. And so I want to allow for more space for that. And I think all it can do is be beneficial. So by getting these students to think more about, well, what is it to be a human being and think about different perspectives and really delve into things and go beyond surface level, that's what's important to me. And they seem to be resonating. How about another reading? Sure. The next one's quite short. It's just the first paragraph of essay 11 called In Praise of Talking to Strangers Most of the Time. So here's the first paragraph. I never learned to swim. They kicked me out of swimming lessons, dance class too. My offenses, refusing to open my eyes underwater, refusing to perform in a recital. I liked the water. I liked dancing. But these were the days before everything a child did or did not do merited praise, if not a trophy. Don't fall in line and you're done. So yes, I spent more time in water wings than a typical child. Sometimes I wish I had them now, though in the metaphorical sense. A pair to help do taxes, to aid in negotiating with difficult people, to provide assistance in the assembly of patio furniture. I like thinking of the patterns I'd choose. Welsh corgis, Monterey cypress trees, otters. They always look like they're having a good time, save when they're drenched in oil post-spill because, well, humans. I'd like to remind everyone, today we're joined by local author and teacher, high school teacher, Catherine Finstuen, discussing her new book, Dearly Befuddled. I am Brian Reynolds for Issues and Ideas on KCBX Public Radio for the Central Coast. Where do you think humanity is headed and uh, both on the good and the dark side? Well, I don't like thinking about the dark side too much. And I think partly the one of the ways that I dealt with um, my discomfort with so much that's going on is this book. Like, how do I keep going, feeling some optimism, some goodness, trying to be good myself when it seems like the opposite is often not only um, okayed by certain segments of the population, but rewarded at the same time? But I realize... I have to live in this body, this mind, this spirit, and I want to do as much good as I can, which can be so many things. It can be making people laugh, which I know that I do, and in in the books, it can be making people feel noticed, cared about. I think more people need to feel noticed and cared about. 
in terms of where we're headed, I think one thing I'm also trying to do is, and you probably noticed this in this collection, is get us to experience without a barrier. And the barrier I'm thinking of now, and there are wonderful things about technology, don't get me wrong, but I want us to be more human than people attached to our phones and devices. Way too often, activities and technologies designed to promote more thorough uh, and convenient communication have just the opposite effect. Exactly. And I think a big part of it is, is the dialogue. One of my biggest worries for or concerns for young people is that they will uh, opt out, they will be um, cynical, they will be skeptical and suspicious, not only of authority, but of their chances of making it in life. And um, I think that one of the aspects of what you do as a teacher and certainly one that I did as a librarian working with people of all ages was to help them acquire and and adjust and sharpen tools that they could use not to change the world altogether but to chip off a little piece of it and work on uh, bits and pieces of it to be aware and engaged but not discouraged and that's a tall order but I th I think that anybody but especially the young people there's a lot of potential there. Mm -hmm. Do you see that, uh, the people you interact with in your class? The more that we have those dialogues that you're talking about, the more that they trust um, that they can open up in front of me and we can discuss all kinds of things, yes. A lot of the things I've learned uh, through reading of all, things of all types, you dive in and then you, you mimic, you imitate. You imitate the ideas of others. You uh, use the same vocabulary. And eventually, if you do it persistently, your own voice comes out. I think that's true in music mm -hmm. uh, quite a bit. How many of these young people are reading uh, literature really on this level, which I consider right up there with uh, some of the best stuff I've ever read? Oh, go on. <laughs> Based on what you said about where I'm hopeful or, or what I want people to do, I do think that the last selection that I've chosen goes along with that. So I'll start that one. This is from about the middle of the book. Okay. I recall a line from Mr. Deeds Goes to Town, a film thankfully rendered in black and white, not with added color, unwholesome looking like so many processed foods. At one point, Gene Arthur's character comments, too busy in a crazy competition for nothing. Is that what our world has become? Or maybe it's always been so, only the medium varying over time. I've admitted my own hypocrisy in this arena. I will also confess to a lack of eloquence under certain circumstances. For instance, when buying underwear from a student, allow me to explain. Holding a soon-to-expire coupon from a certain less-than-exalted department store, I headed there, heedful of the expiration date. For me, such endeavors rank roughly equal with flossing post-corn on the cob consumption. Two ears, conspicuous consumption. Taking my place in line, I surveyed the cashiers. Often, I liken my brain to a three-way bulb. Observing the staff member most likely to ring up my purchase, two pairs of sensible, though pleasantly patterned bikini-cut briefs. Never have my cheeks been torn asunder by a thong, nor will they ever be. The mind switched to the dimmer setting. No, not him. He who once sat amidst a sea of sophomores in my classroom would soon be handling my undergarments. My turn came. I stepped up to the counter. So, here I am, buying underwear. 
he nodded. What more could we say? Embarrassingly blushworthy on both our parts, yes, but neither of us retreated into the catered world of technological oblivion, escaping this odd connection, this part of shared humanity so many wish to obliterate. Let us stop such eradication, such customizing of our lives through variously calibrated filters. I refuse to shake the etch-a-sketch of myself, erasing perceived imperfections, the very symbols of living. I hunger for existence rather than portrayal. We are not nor should we be photoshopped versions of ourselves. Yes, we are blessed with opposable thumbs, but that does not necessitate using them to manipulate our beings, to escape from ourselves, from each other, from this wildly diverse and confusing reality. Where can people find your book? watertinbooks.com and there's two available the first one is uh, those who can't do and then dearly befuddled is also available through that website and those who can't do is we wouldn't want to be a spoiler but it's it's about teaching right <laughs> yeah <laughs> i am brian reynolds for issues and ideas on kcbx public radio for the central coast today we were joined by local author and high school teacher katherine finstuen to talk about her wonderful new book of essays dearly befuddled thank you katherine thank you And finally, a holiday favorite from the KCBX archives, Playing With Food. This is Central Coast Public Radio, KCBX. I'm Father Ian Dellinger, and I'm playing with food. You may think you don't like Brussels sprouts, but the sprouts grown right here on the Central Coast might change your mind. (laughs) What are we going to do? I'm starving. Oh, I just remembered. We do have something to eat. Monica put something in our oven this morning. Oh, yeah. Oh, Oh, my God, it's Brussels sprouts. (laughs) That's worse than no food. Ah, those crazy friends on Friends. Their many episodes express so much of what we experience in our own homes, including culturally ubiquitous foodstuffs. It's the holiday season. It's the holiday season, and what says the holidays better than Brussels sprouts? So many people hate them, yet they adorn every holiday table across the country. Brussels sprouts were brought to the United States in the 18th century via the French to Louisiana. Production shifted to California's central coast in the 1920s, where they enjoy the year-round cool temperatures and coastal fog just like we do. I've always loved Brussels sprouts, and I'm actually on record emphatically expressing my love for Brussels sprouts in a student-made video for a University of Chester documentary on Christmas dinner. Imagine my delight when I moved to San Luis Obispo and drove past Brussels sprouts fields almost every day. There is an endless supply of these cute tiny cabbages here on the central coast, and I'm going to help you fall in love with them or love them even more. My name is Nicole Lewis Brandau. I manage the office for our family farm here in Edna Valley. And the farm has always been Lewis Farms. Rick Lewis is my dad, and we've been farming for five generations here. Can you take me through the field? Absolutely. Let's tromp through the field. How long has this field been here? Planted this back in May. So you'll find that Brussels sprouts are in the field for many months. They take quite a while to grow. So this is about 10 acres of Brussels sprouts. They're all the same height. They're all the same color. It's very uniform. Yes, it is. It is kind of like a sea of those blue-green leaves. It's really cool. They are really, really cool looking plants. If you've never seen how a Brussels sprout grows, it's a stalk growing up. Coming off that stalk, you have big blue-green leaves that create like this super cool canopy. And this field's still a little short, but they'll get up to about chest high, which is really cool, especially when kids stand next to them and you see how big these plants are. And what you've got are these tiny cabbages growing on the stalk. 
when you look at it. And so many growers harvest with a machine where they take the entire stalk out at once and then they run it through the machine and it takes all the sprouts off. We actually harvest by hand, so it's kind of fun to see the bottom leaves disappear as we pick the bigger sprouts from the bottom. And then the top stays intact, and then we'll come back and do it again. And they end up being like this field of skeleton stalks at the end. Oh, wow. So you do this by hand. That's backbreaking work. It is. It has been a privilege to grow up alongside the men who have worked on our farm. Um, many of them have worked here my entire life, and they are the hardest working people I know. The sprouts are growing, and you can see these bigger ones. So this is closer to like a harvest size, that one and a half inch, one inch size. And these guys are still growing. The other size of marbles. Mm -hmm. It's kind of cool to have the, the different sizes going from large to small at the top. And there's little tiny, 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 tiny little baby pea-sized Brussels sprouts. Yeah, and I like the top. It looks kind of like a cabbage flower, which is really neat. And my favorite thing about a Brussels sprout field is on a wet night. I mean, it was even still so wet last night. You can still see them, these drops of dew, like cartoon-like drops of dew gather on the leaves. And when you walk through, they will fall off and soak you. But it's <laughs> so fun. And so you can just see, like, look at these giant ones in here. You can see them at the bottom of the leaves at the sprouts collecting down here. You know, it's afternoon and that water's still there, which oh, I yeah. think is really kind of a, just a fun way of seeing how your food is in its natural state. Yeah, and how amazing nature is and how beautiful nature is, actually. Exactly. Yeah. When do you know the plant is past its useful life? Well, the sprouts will start to open up. Obviously, we wouldn't leave them here that long. And so we pick all the way up to the very top. And then once we've gotten every sprout that has a good shape on it, then it's done. So we are tilling it under and getting ready for our next crops. If you plant in late May and you do multiple harvests, how long is the harvest season for one particular stock? Because it's winter time, you know, my dad has this phrase, a day in July is a week in October. And so the growing time right now is much shorter. The nights are cooler. And so we have more time. We're not losing things in a day. And so we'll actually come through. And like I said, since we harvest by hand, we have a crew of maybe 10 or 12 harvesters coming through. And they'll each do a line at a time and they'll make several passes a day. And it'll take them a week or more to get through one planting of five acres. And then a few weeks later, when those sprouts at the top, where you can see, like, if you look at these, you can see the ones on the bottom are three or four times as big as the ones on the top. And so we'll harvest those larger ones first and then give these ones more time to grow and then come back in when we're ready. So we maybe we'll harvest a first harvest on these five acres and then a first harvest on the next five acres and then come back and start over. It's kind of a continual process. Absolutely. We plan our plantings and our harvest and everything so that we can continuously move through and come back if it is something that we harvest multiple times. But our plantings are made back to back so that we can finish one and move on to the next. One of my questions is, how can we be assured that when we peel back a leaf, there's not going to be a bug? You're not. <laughs> Yes, I mean, that's just an inherent nature of the food. It is possible. I guess that's not a very popular answer. Because they obviously they're on the leaves. You can see that the bugs have eaten the leaves of the stalk. Yeah. But I've never come across a Brussels sprout that had a bug in it. I've never come across cabbage. They do have a tighter head that's going to limit their access. For us as a smaller grower, we will do a visual inspection. We keep a pretty close eye on our fields because pest invasion can cause problems pretty quickly. We don't want to lose this product. So pick one and show me how the pests do or don't get in. 
on the one we saw before, you saw that hole in the leaf and so maybe something burrowed through. Sometimes you can see aphids underneath the leaves. Luckily, we don't see them here. In other parts of other fields, certainly that is a reality that we as growers have to face. And so the reason you're not gonna see bugs in your Brussels sprouts at the store is because they are inspected by us and then by packaging. And then when they get to the customer, they also inspect it and anything that did have pests in it would be rejected. You are doing your quality control and quality assurance here in the field. Yeah, absolutely. If there are pests, then we have to leave it behind. And then there's also things we take into consideration, like how warm is it when we're harvesting? Is the product sitting in the sun? Do we need to get it in the shade? Do we need to ship it sooner in the day? Is it so hot that we can't ship it all? Because it just will not have the same shelf life it would on a more mild day like today. What I should do is I should go to the farmer's market or a U-Pick and get Brussels sprouts. Do you do you pick? We do not. Not for our Brussels sprouts, no. These are grown commercially. A huge emphasis on all farms right now is making sure we produce a product that is safe. And that means that we have measures in place to ensure that the field is basically secure. We actually have an entire plan for food security to make sure that contamination and everything else, and so that means no trespassing, no, you know, all the things that are really terribly boring, but super important to making sure that our food supply is safe and secure. And so on our farm, we do have a U-Pick area in the fall that is a pumpkin patch, but that is not for commercial production, whereas this is something that you'll see in Whole Foods now. Our Brussels sprouts could actually be in Whole Foods right now. So we're just a grower. We don't have a cooler. We pick them ourselves and harvest them, and then we take them to Betteravia Farms, and Bonnie Pack is actually the wholesale brand. Betteravia Farms is their farm branch, and then Bonnie Pack packages and sells our Brussels sprouts for us. I love Brussels sprouts. I've loved them ever since I was a child, which is kind of strange. Do you actually like Brussels sprouts that you grow? I do really, really love Brussels sprouts. I also grew up eating them and we had them every Thanksgiving and Christmas and I really like them. And then I never met anybody else who liked them until about 10 years ago when I started seeing them on restaurant menus. That's a weird thing. Explain this. So my history with this is I used to live in Britain where Brussels sprouts come out at Christmas and they boil them to death and they're disgusting. I'd come home every summer and one summer I came home and there were like crispy fried Brussels sprouts on an appetizer menu in a craft brewery. And I'm like, what's this? And then it just exploded and then it jumped over the pond and they're doing glazed Brussels sprouts as a bar appetizer. What happened? That's a great question. There's actually, I think, a few things that happen. I think chefs finally started to look at this amazing vegetable and learn how to prepare it in a way that tastes good. But there's also, we have to take another 10 years back and go back to the mid nineties. And a plant breeder in the Netherlands actually isolated the chemical in Brussels sprouts that gave them the bitter taste, which is why nobody likes them. And because you're eating them wrong, because you cooked them too much. <laughs> it's your fault. <laughs> But he actually isolated this bitter chemical, the compound in the Brussels sprout that gives it that flavor. And he went back to the heirloom varieties and they have hundreds and hundreds of varieties in these seed vaults and looked at which ones had a lower instance of that chemical and then crossbred it with more modern varieties that give a higher yield. And they actually improved the flavor of Brussels sprouts. That's amazing. That's amazing. So do they taste different than they did when you were a kid? Well, I cooked them better <laughs> than my parents did. I still like them the way I grew up eating them. I did not have a sophisticated enough palate as a child to recognize those notes, but it's just fascinating to see how a vegetable has gone from a total pariah to one of the trendiest items on a holiday plate.
How healthy are they? Very. Like any other fresh vegetable, you want to incorporate lots of colors into your diet, lots of varieties of foods. They have a high vitamin content, high fiber content. They're going to make you feel full. It's a sustaining fulfillment and a good thing to put in your body. You have had a lifetime of Brussels sprouts, and you say you cook them better than your parents. <laughs> well, I did, just the way we cook them has evolved. So when I was a child, when we would have, my dad still says the same thing. He still makes them the same way every Thanksgiving and Christmas. We steam them briefly till they're al dente. That's so important. Al dente means to the tooth. So you are cooking them so that they're just tender enough to eat, but they still have a little bit of a crunch to them. And when you say, oh my gosh, the smell of Brussels sprouts, that's overcooked Brussels sprouts. Fresh Brussels sprouts at the peak of freshness, not overcooked, have an incredible flavor. So when I grew up, backtrack, my dad would look around at everybody and say, we have 10 guests for Christmas dinner. He says, okay, so how many Brussels sprouts? One per person. And we would take one per person because that's all anybody would eat. <laughs> I do six per person because that compensates for the people who like Brussels sprouts and the people who don't. Yeah, it's definitely much different now, but it was it was always funny. And then at, at the end of dinner, there would always be one left over. He says, see, we cook too many. But we would steam them briefly until they're al dente, a little butter, a little fresh shave of Parmesan, and a little salt. And it is a really nice flavor. The way I cook them now is very different. I cook them lots of different ways. I still steam them sometimes. Mostly I pan roast them, which I really enjoy. My favorite way right now is I have them, pan roast them, toss them in a homemade lemon honey vinaigrette, and then I do a schmear of goat cheese on a plate, and I load my hot toss Brussels sprouts on top of there, and then I do maybe a little drizzle of honey, and the tangy goat cheese with the sweetness of the honey and the Brussels sprouts is really, really good with pancetta or bacon, always a winner. You're right. Everything with bacon tastes better. <laughs> <laughs> so many different ways to make them. I've been reading about how people are doing them like chips. So they peel the leaves back and fry the leaves and then make like a Brussels sprout chip, which I'm really anxious to try. Can you eat the leaves? Because like I was watching a film about food waste. It was kind of focusing on the production side instead of the consumer side. And they said, for example, you don't have to throw away these cauliflower greens. You can eat them. Can you eat Brussels sprout greens? I'm sure you could. I have never done that. My only hesitation would be is because they grow for so long on the outside and they're protecting the plant. They're here for so long. I don't know how tender they would be, but cooked, I'm sure they would be delicious. I'm curious to know more about that. Maybe we should do an experiment. My show is called playing with food. My favorite things, science and eating. Is it possible that I could take a few home with me and fool around with them and see what I come up with? Absolutely. We're going to pick some here. How do you, how should we choose how to pick these? Uh, I'm looking for ones that aren't damaged. So I'm looking for ones that have been chewed on by a bug maybe. Okay. So I'm just looking for ones that are in good shape. And then you'll see the leaves at the bottom have started to yellow and brown. So I'm steering clear of those. How about one more? Sure. I'll check to make sure they're not poisonous like rhubarb leaves. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely look that up. One of my new favorites is zucchini ribbons with spinach and mix them together and it kind of gives you a little bit of both. You know, how much sauteed spinach can one person eat? I can eat a lot. <laughs> Another <laughs> but, vegetable I've liked since I was a child. Yeah, one thing it doesn't bother me, but for my husband it's a lot to ask of him, but if I mix something else in there, then maybe it's a little bit more fun, a little more interesting, and you get a little bit of dimension on the plate and more nutrients and more variety. Thanks to Nicole, I went home with four large Brussels sprout leaves. Since playing with food is my hobby, I went straight into my kitchen to experiment with them. I have my friend Laura here with me today. Hi there. I was on a Brussels sprout farm this morning south of town, and 
I asked, can you do anything with Brussels sprout leaves? They're pretty cool. They have leaves all the way from the bottom to the top, however tall the stalk is. And I've got four leaves here. We're gonna chop them up and saute them with onions and garlic, and then we're gonna have a taste. I don't have any bacon. Well, that's okay. But I do have bacon fat. Oh, wow. So let's saute them in that. Yeah, great idea. And we already have some chicken going, so you can hear that going in the background. Let's just get started. I'm gonna chop them up right now. So did you have Brussels sprouts as a kid for Christmas? No, I didn't know it was a Christmas thing. <laughs> well, you lived uh, in Britain like I did. That's where we met. Yeah. And they have Brussels sprouts, you know, they start them in November. It's a big deal. Yeah, like, and nobody likes them, but they all have them all for Christmas. All have yeah. them. I think my mom tried them on us at some point, but we just hated them as kids. Hated them. And now that I've had them like roasted, they're quite, you know, they're pretty good. But what you're doing here is very interesting with the leaves. We throw the greens into the pan with the onions and the garlic, and I'm just gonna stir them around until they're soft. Do you want any spices or any herbs I'm in there? Okay. So we should just try them as natural as possible. Just a little bit of water. That will help them soften up a little bit faster. Our Brussels sprouts greens are done. Here's your little thing, and here's mine. Are you ready? Yeah. Okay, take a bite. Let's take a bite. That's nice. Mm. It's subtle. Mm -hmm. I think with Brussels sprouts, we have this idea that it's going to taste a certain way. Mm -hmm. But this is really subtle. Yeah, I like it. I like it like any other greens. Mm -hmm. And this is just like sauteed greens, except they have this subtle Brussels sprouts flavor. Mm -hmm. Would be better with bacon. Would be better with dairy fat of some sort, you know. But to try it in its most basic form, we know what we can use it with. And it's in abundance south of San Luis Obispo. So all we need to do is ask Nicole for Brussels sprout leaves and we could eat for the rest of our lives because mm. each tree probably has 20 or 25 leaves on it. <laughs> like I think this should be a food source. I think we're onto something. Nicole, if you're listening, start harvesting, packaging, and selling the Brussels sprout leaves. Thanks for the gift. Speaking of gifts... You have an abundance of these. They come at the perfect time of year. Have you ever given somebody a bag of Brussels sprouts for Christmas gifts or birthday presents? I have given them as teacher gifts combined with a bottle of wine. But I think that giving fresh produce and sharing something that you make with somebody or you picked yourself is a really unique gift. I hope they appreciated it, but the wine helped. <laughs> <laughs> What was their rea like physical reaction when you handed them a bag of Brussels sprouts? I mean, well, she was a kindergarten teacher, and so she gets excited about everything. And so, <laughs> I mean, it felt like a five-year-old, like, oh my goodness, look at this macaroni necklace you made me. It's so beautiful. But I really do think that she enjoyed them. Because like I said, if you like to cook and you like to be in the kitchen, it's always fun to have something new. I may be a little biased because I went into this knowing that I already love Brussels sprouts. If this holiday exploration didn't entice you to give them just one more try, then perhaps nothing will. But that's okay. That means there's more Brussels sprouts for me. But I'll let Nicole take one more shot at convincing the world that this tiny cabbage deserves pride of place on your holiday table and your dinner plate. You are very comfortable with them, but I would encourage anyone 
to try them, to give them a try. I mean, people look at me like I'm crazy when we say we grow Brussels sprouts, but I think that they are a versatile and delicious side dish or even a main course. I'm not joking when I say if you don't like Brussels sprouts, you really probably have been eating them wrong. And to give them a try because they're so good. It's so simple, just a little olive oil, salt and pepper and a roast in the oven and that caramelization that comes from either a pan roast and a cast iron pan or in the oven. I mean, the flavor is just fantastic and a compliment to any meal. I'm Father Ian Dellinger, and I'm playing with food. This episode was from the KCBX archives. You've been listening to Issues and Ideas on KCBX Central Coast Public Radio. Gary Eister composed our theme music. A special thanks to all our guests and contributors this week. I'm Carol Tangeman. Join us each Monday from 1 to 2 in the afternoon for more local stories. You can head to our website to learn more about what you heard today or to listen to past segments, kcbx.org.